All right, you can turn in your Bibles if you haven't already to the Song of Solomon. Today we'll be getting the big picture of the Song of Songs. Big picture of the Song of Songs. Got a question for you. What is the most important revolution of the last century? What would you say is the most important revolution of the last century, the last hundred years or so? Well, some would say perhaps the most important revolution is the sexual revolution. In this particular revolution, there's been many simple changes that have really instigated very profound effects upon you and and our our society and our country and our world. For example, contraception replaced conception. The price of sexual activity in the process uh, seemingly dropped dramatically in, in, in that process. Pleasure was separated from the responsibility. Contraceptive devices in abortion clinics replaced schools and orphanages. Some would say it's almost like there was a, a license given out to legitimize the bending of every part of our lives around serving ourselves. It's all about the worship of self. That's what it's about. It's idolatry, really. And since that time, it shouldn't be a surprise to us as a result of the sexual revolution that divorce has increased, remarriage is common, abortion is out of control big time, millions and millions of babies are murdered every year, premarital sex is rampant, extramarital sex is rampant, and even homosexuality is now publicized and is common and is accepted and we now have laws helping the homosexuals. It's been accepted by by the increasing percentage of, of our public, not just in New Zealand but around the world. The boundaries that once seemed to be fixed now appear insecure. I'll give you a small list of some perverted practices that are being promoted in our society. For example, sadomasochism. It's the gaining of sexual gratification by alternately or simultaneously enduring pain and causing pain to someone else. It's going on in our society. Polygamy. Even though there's laws against it, it still goes on. Polygamy is this idea where you can have multiple spouses. I'm not sure how you pronounce this, uh, pederasty, which is sex between a man and a boy, goes on. Bestiality, which is sexual activity between a human being and an animal, is going on. In fact, I helped clear out one guy's, one guy's house one time. Everything in the house had to be emptied out because he wasn't paying his bills. And this was going on in his house. It was really disgusting. So this sort of stuff goes on behind closed doors. Uh, sometimes in public, and people know about it. Another sad sign of the age is pornography has become big business. Big business. I mean, I was doing some, some research. Statistics just in the United States alone was, was horrifying. For example, in 1996, Americans rented 665 million pornographic videos generated over $3 billion, billion, yes, that was with a B. 1997, the whole porno, porno, uh, 
pornography industry was estimated to be $10 billion a year just in the United States alone. As Christians, we've got to ask the question then, how should we, if we claim to be Christians, how should we respond to this sexual revolution? Well, some say we just simply just follow our culture, just kind of go with the flow. Some say, you know, just surrender our desires. And others suggest we should deny these desires altogether. Just deny your desires. All, all, you know, desires are evil. Neither of those two responses really fit with what God has built us to be as human beings. So neither, what, what, I, what I'm going to propose to you today is that neither of those responses are appropriate for a Christian. It's not appropriate to just say that all desires are evil, and neither is the other pendulum swing appropriate to say, well, just, just do it. Whatever your heart and your desires are, do it. Neither response is appropriate for a Christian. So what do we do then? What do we do if, if neither of those are appropriate? Well, we need to turn to God's wisdom to find the answers. And God's wisdom is, is very helpful in, in, in overcoming these assaults that seem to be coming uh, thicker and heavier, don't they? And stronger as the years go on. So we need to turn to the Song of Songs, which usually gets called the Song of Solomon. You'll see in the very first verse, it's called the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. <laughs> so most people believe this was written by Solomon. It's called the Song of Songs. Now, before we get into this, we, we need to address some hermeneutical issues here. Rules of interpretation are really important. This is one of these books that unfortunately gets, it gets slaughtered because of various ideas on hermeneutics. So... Let me uh, just give you the different ways of reading this book, and then I'll tell you uh, the one that, that I'm using. All right. Uh, well, some people approach the, the Song of Solomon with an allegorical approach. And, and by allegory, uh, what, I'm, what I'm just saying is everything gets, gets spiritualized. You don't take it literally. And so what they do is they deny the lover and the beloved here as, as they, well, they just simply say they're not two, they're not two people that these people that are mentioned here aren't real people. And so the metaphor of the lovers is just a literary device, if you will, for displaying some other meaning. You don't read it where, you know, as, it, as it says. No, it's, it means something else. And they usually say it's the love of God for his people. That's what, that's what they, if you allegorize it, that's how most of them end up coming out. This is all about the love of God for his people. That's the allegorical approach. The second approach is the typological approach. You see the word type there. So they accept the historicity of these two lovers as two real people, but what they do is they shift the emphasis to what the couple represents. So two real people, a man and a woman, but what, is it, what are they representing? They're representing something else. So the figures are real, but we should pay greater heed to the greater reality that they point toward. Number three, a third approach is you just read it as a drama or a story. This is just a drama 
or a story. It's complete with characters and, and well-developed characters, and there's, uh, there's movement, there's structure, there's plot going on here. Uh, many different suggestions have been made to who the characters are and, and what that plot is. So, I mean, if you take that approach, then it's really difficult to, to really get some serious meaning out of the book. It's a difficult approach to take. Number four, and the last one I'll share with you is this, and this is the one I think is the best approach for the Song of Solomon, is you understand the book as a song. That's what it calls itself, right? In verse one, the song of songs. It's a song. It's a collection of songs, plural. These are basically human love poems. They're they're love poems predominantly between, well, we assume Solomon and the Shunammite woman. There's, there's this give and take going on, continually talking and writing to each other here. And now this seems to be the natural and literal meaning of the text. And so in hermeneutics, when the, uh, the, the plain sense makes sense, you don't make any other sense of it, lest it become nonsense. So that's what we should do here. And that's the natural and literal meaning of the text. That's what we're going to do. And, and so much of the difficulty really is cleared up when you take this hermeneutical approach, just take it as it is. It's, it's a collection of love songs or love poems, if you will. So following that line of interpretation, basically here, here's how the, the book kind of breaks down. I'll just quickly give you an order of how the book breaks down. Now, in chapters 1 and 2, it's leading up to their wedding. They, they eventually get married, but before that, they're, you know, they're getting to know one another. And then in chapter 3, at least the first few verses, there, there's this dream. And then the, the, the last part of chapter 3 recounts the wedding procession. Then in chapter 4, it's all about praising the bride's beauty. Uh, whoever the groom is, he loves this woman, clearly loves this woman. Talks and praises her beauty. By the way, guys, there's... Uh, <clears throat> I'm not suggesting you, you write these kind of poems to your wife, but there is, some good, there is some good things you can take from this book in romancing your wife. Those of you who are single, there's some good things here in romancing your spouse-to-be. You may not want to talk exactly the way they do. Uh, in fact, I probably recommend you don't, because we live in a different culture. Right? It's not going to go over the same way. But anyway, then in, then in uh, chapter 4, verse 16, going on chapter 5, there's the consummation of the marriage. And then uh, going into chapter 6, they, they show a temporary separation, uh, as typically goes when you get married. You don't, you don't see eye to eye in everything. Right? There's going to be a little bit of conflict. Uh, whenever two, two sinners get together, there's going to be some conflict. And so you need to learn how to deal with that conflict. By the way, that's normal. Okay? Sinners get together, there's going to be some headbutting going on. And that's, that happened here. But they, they learn to deal with their marital difficulty, and there's eventually a reunion. And then from, from the middle part of verse, or chapter 6 into chapter 8, there's this reaffirmation of their love for each other. And then the book ends in chapter 8 with reflections and reaffirmation of their love for one another. So that's generally how the book flows, okay? 
So, so there is some plot going on. You know, it's, it's, they, they're getting to know one another at the beginning. It builds up to their wedding and all this wonderful praise of beauty and the relationship. And they have some difficulties, you know, in, in their marriage as we all do. And, but, but it ends on a good note. So this book depicts several important aspects of longing and loving and of how God has given us gifts in marriage. Marriage is a gift of God. God designed marriage. Unfortunately, marriage is under attack. But you never forget that God designed the institution of marriage. It's the first institution he made, isn't it? God, God made Adam, and then he made Eve from Adam, and he brought them together, and God was the one who performed that first Marriage, if you will, he's the one who walked Eve down the aisle and gave away Eve to Adam. God designed marriage. It's a wonderful gift. And, and God wants uh, marriage to be used to meet the very desires that he made us to have. Desires are not evil. Uh, now, specifically, God's designed marriage to meet four different types of longings. All right, let me just quickly share these with you, and you'll, you can see these in the book of the Song of Solomon. Number one, God designed marriage for enjoying physical intimacy. God designed marriage for physical intimacy. Not exclusively, but that's one of the reasons why God designed marriage, for physical intimacy. Number two, for building relational intimacy. You are a relational person. You're made in God's image. Now, part of that is you can think, you can reason, you have emotions, you can fellowship and talk. And think, right? That's, that's part of the image of God you're made in. So, so it's a beautiful thing. You can do that with another human being as well. Now, number three is you were, um, God designed marriage for establishing identity. And number four, for finding meaning. For finding meaning. Now, we'll address all four of those throughout the book of Song of Solomon, okay? But let's, um, before we get too far here, let's just read uh, some verses here in chapter one. And if just in case you don't have a Bible that does this, let me just tell you, I've got a wonderful Bible here that's broken chapter 1 up into parts. And it shows the, the conversation going on between, now in this case it says she, the Shunammite woman, there's others, and then, it, and then she talks again, and then he talks. And then the others speak, and then she speaks, and he speaks. And then chapter or 1 ends with she is speaking again. So there's this conversation, but then there's other people involved here, which if you don't have a Bible that does that for you, it might be a bit confusing, all right? So let's start at verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's, she speaks here, verse 2. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine, your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. And then the others speak. We will exult and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. She speaks in verse 5. I am very dark but lovely. O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon, do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me, 
They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. Tell me, you whom my soul loves, where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon, for why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? Then he speaks in verse 8. If you do not know, O most beautiful among women, follow in the tracks of the flock and pasture your young goats beside the shepherd's tents. I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of jewels. Others speak in verse 11. We will make for you ornaments of gold studded with silver. She speaks in verse 12. While the king was on his couch, my nard gave forth its fragrance. My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Engedi. He speaks in verse 15. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. And then she speaks in verse 16. Behold, you are beautiful, my beloved, truly delightful. Our couch is green. The beams of our house are cedar. Our rafters are pine. I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. We'll stop there. First of all, I want you to notice that God meets our need for physical intimacy. One of the, the reasons God created marriage is to meet our need for physical intimacy. In Scripture, we see that the longing for physical intimacy is God-given. It's something that's good. In fact, the book of Hebrews, which shows that Christ is the best, says that the marriage bed is honorable. It's something that is undefiled. Why is that? Because God made it that way. God made us as physical creatures. We have bodies. Uh, Certainly, an appropriate type of physical intimacy can be shared between members of the same sex. For example, we come in on Sunday mornings and we we do handshakes, right? Uh, Maybe some of you did hugs. Uh, I don't know. Some of you may have done high fives. I don't know. But, uh, you know, that's that's an example of of physical touch. That's nothing, nothing wrong with that. That's not evil. However, in the Song of Solomon, though, the author has an even more specific physical affection in view. He, he's getting into this sexual relationship between a husband and a wife. Well, not in chapter 1, but eventually he will. And so the Song of Solomon doesn't know that desire can be dangerous. It doesn't talk about that necessarily, although uh, three times we read in this book... It says, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Three times it says that. It's a crucial theme. And so there's times when love is appropriately expressed, but it can, love can also be inappropriately expressed at various times. Christianity, by the way, is not a religion that says the physical... Oh, that's bad. That's evil. That, you know, wicked. Now, Christianity doesn't say that. Doesn't say that the spiritual is good, but the physical is evil. Uh, that's, that's what the Gnostics believed. 
Uh, Even into the New Testament, the Gnostics were teaching that false teaching that physical was evil and the spiritual was good. The Bible doesn't teach that. We, we as believers, we don't assume that everything having to do with, with our, the physical is evil. At least I hope you don't. And so it helps us to remember the Bible has a positive message about sex. Okay? Now, unfortunately, Hollywood and our world and other places uh, are not giving an accurate representation of what God believes about sex. So let me just exhort you right now, beware, particularly Hollywood, what comes out of Hollywood is, is skewed, is not accurate for the most part, so you just need to beware that, that worldly thinking can easily infiltrate your thinking. Uh, books, magazines, radio, so forth, just beware of the, world, the world's philosophies don't, don't penetrate and permeate you. So the Song of Solomon's primarily an unabashed celebration of the pleasure of physical intimacy. It is unashamed of that. God intends for your longings for physical intimacy to be met. Do you hear that? God wants your longings for physical intimacy to be met. Now, there's, there's parameters that, that God gives you with that, all right? But, uh, of course, that comes within... Marriage, predominantly. So we, we need to be reminded that physical love is delightful. I mean, for example, look at chapter 1 here, verse 2. Uh, chapter 1, verse 2. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. It's an example. Physical love is something delightful. All right, look at chapter 4, verse 10. Chapter 4, verse 10. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than any spice. So throughout this book, you should get this idea that physical love is delightful. It's it's something that can be celebrated. By the way, you as parents, uh, you, you have a responsibility as parents to teach your children that physical love is delightful. Okay, within marriage, <laughs> all right. You do need to set boundaries on that, but but don't don't do what. Unfortunately, some some Christians went the pendulum swing went too far. They didn't want their children having premarital sex, and so they would swing the pendulum way over here and say that that all physical intimacy is evil. Well, that that's a lie. Number one, it's not biblical, and that's that's not how you teach kids to stay away. You know, and and. and and only have sex within marriage. It's not appropriate to do that way. So beware, parents. You need to be balanced on that. But in this book here, we observe the appreciation of physical beauty. Now, physical beauty shouldn't be, become an idol, of course. But uh, look, look at an example here in chapter 1. <clears throat> chapter 1, verse 15. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. Behold, you are beautiful, my beloved. Truly delightful. So, again, we're not going to take... This is not an exhaustive study, all right? But, but throughout the book, you see this celebration of physical beauty. Physical love is also celebrated, and, and the book says it's even satisfying. Physical love is satisfying. 
Look at chapter 4, verse 11. Chapter 4, verse 11. Your lips dripped nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. It's, it's, it's satisfying, that's the point. Physical love is satisfying. So throughout the book, the writer portrays, and he's celebrating this erotic affection between two real people, two people who get married, two married lovers, and, and it's, it's celebrating this toward each other. Now let me just give you a few examples. Chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 6. Chapter 3, verse 6. What is that coming up from the wilderness like columns of smoke performed with myrrh and, fra- and frankincense with all the fragrant powders of a merchant? Well, it goes on. Talk about this. Look at chapter 6, verse 10. Chapter 6, verse 10. Who is this who looks down like the dawn, beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun, awesome as an army with banners? Ladies, that may not speak to you, but to the guys it would. An army with banners. Ooh, that was, that was impressive back then, okay? So whatever imagery is really impressive, do you put that in your mind, okay? If that imagery doesn't work for you. All right, so chapter 8, verse 5. Chapter 8, verse 5. Who is that coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? Under the apple tree I awakened you. There your mother was in labor with you. There she who bore you was in labor I know it's kind of a strange way for us to talk today, but don't miss the point. All right? There's this celebration of this love going on here. So we, we, we see in the book of the Song of Songs, or the Song of Solomon, that God is meeting our need for physical intimacy. But it's not just stopping there. It goes on, number two, we also see that God meets our need for relational intimacy. We're not just physical beings, we're relational beings. And so this longing may be more subtle, but nevertheless, it's something that's real. You do have relational uh, needs. And in this book, the lovers are sharing this longing to build this relational intimacy. They, wa- they want to be with one another. They want to talk to one another. They want to get to know one another. And so the Bible is not presenting the lone hermit as some model for human existence. Do you hear me on that? You know, monasticism, you know, nuns living in some monastery or some person living up on a mountain by themselves is not a good thing. That should not be celebrated. God didn't create us to be alone. In fact, in the Song of Solomon, we should not see merely physical attraction here, but each of the lovers is possessing this personal desire to know, and they also want to be known. It's a wonderful thing to be known. And so once again, this book reminds us that that kind of knowledge is something that's good. To be known and to know someone else is a good thing. The need for relational intimacy is something that's natural, it's healthy, it's biblical, it's the way God designed you, therefore it is good. It's just part of being a human being. It's part of being made in God's image. So we long for human relationships. That's how God made us. And and I want you to notice how this this book here propels us forward as readers with a call and response. God's calling us 
and he wants us to respond. The lover calls and the beloved responds. We see that over and over again. One speaks, the other speaks, the other speaks. And there's const- they're constantly speaking to one another. And there's this two-way relationship going on. It's a two-way relationship. There's mutuality in their love. It's not just one person loving someone else. They're loving each other. They're speaking to each other. They're giving time and gifts to each other. It's mutual. And that's the way God intends our physical desires to be met within the context of interpersonal desires. So good physical intimacy can occur only within the context of a good relationship. Now notice how I said that. Good physical intimacy can only occur within the context of a good relationship. All right? So it's, it's sad when people don't have that good relationship and they're just going and you know, meeting someone at a bar or a pub or whatever and <clears throat> supposedly have these one-night stands. That's not the way God designed it. You're not going to have true, good, physical, deep intimacy. There's no good relationship it's not satisfying, which is why people do that sort of things. They're never satisfied, right? They're never satisfied doing that. And so that's why God designed sex to be reserved for marriage. So those of you who are single, by the way, those of you who are married, you need, if you don't already, you need to have this commitment to your spouse, I will be faithful. Okay? You can't do that in your own strength. You need God's grace to do that. It's a struggle. And so those of you who aren't married need to realize just because you get married doesn't mean the struggle's going to end. You're always going to have that battle of the mind, battle of the eyes and the ear gates and so forth. Always going to be there. Reserve sex for marriage only. That's the way God designed it. Now there's, there's scriptures we can look at on that. Uh, if you don't know where they are, you can look in a concordance. So, to have sex without being married is kind of like, let me give you an illustration. It's kind of like moving into a house that doesn't belong to you. Can you imagine that happening? You know, just, just pick some house that you, you, you want to, you say, hey, I like that house. I want to I live in that house. And then you just, you just take all your stuff and you go and you move in. How do you think that's going to work? That doesn't work very good. In fact, you'll get arrested and thrown in jail if, if you think that's your right, right? That's called trespassing. But it's the same with sex. Sex without being married to that person is like moving into someone's house that doesn't belong to you. Okay? You don't have that right until you're married. Premarital sex is like trespassing. It doesn't match what God intends for us. So... Uh, This couple ends up getting married in the middle part of this book. And this is celebrated. And the sex that comes after their marriage is celebrated. So God meets the need for relational intimacy. Number three, God meets our need for identity. God meets our need for identity. Now, I've I've skipped a lot of verses in this book just because I'm concerned about being inappropriate in mixed company here. So if you haven't read this, this book recently, read the whole book in one sitting. It won't take you long. And one of the things you'll see is that God meets our need for identity. This book celebrates the person that 
physical love helps us to be. And it's the identity that physical love helps us to find. Now, much of who the lover and the beloved are as individuals is tied up in their relationship. It's tied up in their relationship. They know and they define themselves according to their relationship with each other. I'll give you an example. Look at chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 3. Just just you can see their identity is tied up with each other. Look at this. Chapter 6, verse 3. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He grazes among the lilies. Okay? Notice it's mutuality. There's a community here, if you will. It's not just a one-way street. It's, it's not, you know, hey, I am my beloved's. It doesn't stop there. In fact, the book of Corinthians says, you are not your own. You actually belong to your spouse. It's, it's, it, there, there's a, uh, a mutuality. There's a, a tying together of our, of our definition or of our identity with each other. So clearly, this is why personal relationships can be so dangerous. Now, don't don't get me wrong. Personal relationships can be wonderful and helpful. But at the same time, the Bible warns us personal relationships can be uh, soul-killing, if you will, can actually be a hindrance to our spiritual growth. And so if you enter a relationship wrongly, you're playing with something within you, a, a, a deep longing, something in you, that um, is precious and can be destroyed. It, it can hurt. And that's why, that's why the, you know, the, the nasty stuff that happens in courts when people are getting divorces is, oh, it just, it just rips everyone to shreds. Horrible things going on in our society as a result of that. Why, why is that? And why are people so bitter even years and years later after a divorce? It's because their soul's been torn to shreds. It's the way God made us. There's something deep within us that, that is, uh, you know, when you get married, you become one flesh. And you rip that, you rip that apart and it's, there, there's going to be scars forever. Well, on the other hand, if you enter a relationship inside the structure of the Bible here, you're actually going to find great fulfillment within that structure, the way, the way God designed it. Remarkably, personal fulfillment is available through the exclusive monogamous marital love that's described in this book. So I'll give you uh, an example of this exclusive married love. Look at chapter 7, chapter 7, verse 13. Chapter 7, verse 13, the mandrakes give forth fragrance, and beside our doors are all choice fruits, new as well as old, which I have laid up for you, O my beloved. Now here in this context, the bride's giving her love. If you look at verse 11, she says, Come, my beloved, let us go out into the fields and lodge in the villages. Let us go out early to the vineyards and see whether the vines have budded whether the grapes blossom have opened and the pomegranates are in bloom, there I will give you, singular, you, singular, my love. She gives an example. And and you see this throughout the book in various ways. 
married love is to be exclusive. A completeness comes about through this monogamous marriage that God has designed. There's, there's two things worth noting, all right? Number one, first of all, marriage brings about a type of completeness when that is guarded from other lovers. It is possible for there to be another party involved in, in your relationship. Even if they're not there physically, they can be there emotionally, right? And, and so if they're there emotionally, this, there's a problem, right? God created us to couple up, if you will. Uh, you, you should expect to find the most satisfaction and the most contentment with that other person whom God has given to you. It's the way God made you, unless he's given you the gift of celibacy. <laughs> but even, even then, God still made you to have relationships with people. He didn't make you to, to be a hermit, even if you happen to have the gift of celibacy. Okay, so, number two. Marriage provides this sense of completeness, even, by the way, even when there's no children involved in your relationship. Okay? Uh, some of you don't have children, okay? You're not somehow a lesser couple. You're, you're, it's, it's, you are not... The book, let me put it this way. The Song of Solomon doesn't even talk about children. Okay? Some, sometimes... Uh, married couples who can't have children or whatever, uh, you know, they get, they get angry or they get depressed or bitter. and they, they got issues going on there because they're not like all these other people who have children. They, they, they somehow think they're missing out on God's best or whatever, right? That is not the case. That is not the case. Do we believe in God's sovereignty or not? God, God made you that way. God is the one who opens and closes wombs. We, we could look at several examples in Scripture to prove that. Just start in the book of Genesis. There's at least four women mentioned there where God closes their wombs, and then he opens some of them later on. God's in charge of whether or not you have children. Right? So if he wants you to have children, he'll give them to you. If he doesn't, then he closes your womb some way or another. But you're, you're not somehow a lesser spiritual being than other people who have children. So marriage provides a sense of completeness, by the way, even in the absence of children. And I say that because, interestingly enough, this book never mentions children. That's not what it's about. All right, number four. Let's move on. God meets our need for finding meaning. God meets our need for finding meaning. He made you to find meaning. So as humans, we long to find meaning. For our lives. We, we want to know our reason for living. You know, we talk about the big questions, for example. You know, where did I come from? Why am I here? Where am I going? These are some big questions. Everybody wants to know that sort of stuff. Why? Because God made you that way. In fact, the first, very first catechism that I learned, and many people learn, is what is the chief end of mankind? Right? That, that's a big question. Very important question. What's the answer? The answer to what is the chief end of mankind is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. God made you to enjoy Him forever. To bring Him glory. What's the ultimate purpose of your life? Well, it could be to have a relationship... Well, no, let me, that's a wrong way of wording it. It is to have a relationship with God. 
primarily to have a relationship with God. In the Song of Solomon, we see a picture of true love here. Any picture of true love, by the way, is illustrating God's love toward us. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul, Apostle Paul uses marriage uh, to illustrate something bigger and better and longer lasting than our physical relationship. And it's that love between Christ and the church. You realize when, when that, that relationship's not going to end. Your physical relationship with your spouse will end. That's not permanent. But the relationship between you and Christ is permanent. In fact, uh, just listen, Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5. Paul illustrates this wonderful relationship that all believers have between us and Christ, and he uses marriage to illustrate it. So guys, ladies, your marriage is illustrating that relationship. So, So listen. It says in Hebrew, or sorry, Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Guys, you love yourself. That's what Scripture says. <laughs> right? We don't have an issue with that. The issue is, are you loving your wife as you love yourself? It goes on, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. And then Paul quotes from Genesis chapter 2 when he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So don't miss the big picture there. As you focus in, you you might be zooming in on your little part of the relationship. Guys, you're supposed to love your wife as Christ loves the church, and as you love yourself. Ladies, you're supposed to submit to the headship, which is your husband, Okay, that's, that's your duties that God gives you there. But don't miss the big picture. What, what is it you're supposed to be illustrating? You're supposed to be bringing glory to God through your relationship. Well, the beauty and the power of our longing for one another's love points to the relationship you and I have been called to have with God. It's a relationship that signifies completion. Something that's permanent, it's eternal. So my friend, do you want to know how you can know the love of God? Do you want to know how to have an eternal peace with Him? Do you? Well, number one, you've got to repent of your sins. Continually repent of your sins. Repentance, by the way, literally means a change of mind in regard to your sin. You've got to... 
no longer see this, your sin as, as you see it. You need to see your sin as God sees it. Okay? It's a, it's a, it's a total turning and forsaking of that. You, you no longer love it, but you need to love God. You need to repent of your sin. You need to trust in Christ wholly for forgiveness of your sin. And we must forsake our sin and our other lovers. <laughs> Whatever those other lovers might be, whether it's a person or a thing. <clears throat> Someone said you have idols of your heart. Your heart is an idol factory. We need to forsake our false gods, and we need to look to Christ alone. If, we, if we're not looking to Christ alone, then there's, there's idolatry going on. There's some other idol there. And so he alone is the one who laid down his life before the wrath of God. He, he, he took God's wrath for your sin and for you, and he's the one who paid that penalty that you deserve. And When we believe that, we put our faith and our trust in Christ alone, then then he becomes our Savior and he becomes our Lord. Well, I want to just kind of wrap this up by looking at two key themes in this book. Uh, number one is God's covenant. Within uh, the Bible, there's, there's commands for sexual purity. And these, these commands, are, uh, God's covenant provides marriage as the right framework, if you will, within which his people can properly enjoy the gift of sexual intimacy. In fact, Genesis chapter 2, right at the very beginning, God said this, that a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Part of that's that physical intimacy. God has provided the framework for that to take place, and that's within marriage. If you, you try to step outside that framework, you're breaking what God has designed. Number two, another key theme is that marriage is a gift of God. And it's found on, on uh, well, what, what it's founded on, what its foundation is, is loyalty and commitment. It's founded on loyalty and commitment. If you don't have loyalty and commitment in a relationship, then, then what do you have? You, you can't trust each other, which is why you get all these you know, prenuptial agreements and all sorts of weird things, people, you know, because they, you know, they want to have their own bank account because there's no way I can trust that person, right? Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's me and my life, and, you know, it, it's almost like they're, they're not even married when they do that sort of thing. It's just a roommate. It shouldn't be that way. It's not a one-flesh loyalty and commitment. And so there's, there's two pendulum swings you need to be aware of. One of those is where sex is just taken casually, and in fact, some people even malign it and, and even deny it. Which is why you got some, some religions have said throughout the years, you know, that, that you know, priests don't get married, right? And you got nuns, and they never get married, or whatever. You know, that, and that's just not a Roman Catholic thing. Some, sometimes, even within evangelicalism, we see that sort of thing. Sex is not to be taken casually, it's not to be blind, and it's not to be denied in marriage. Number two, the other pendulum swing goes the other way, is that sex should not be worshipped and made out to be the point of life. Uh, in our culture, that's probably the pendulum swing, more the pendulum swing we need to be aware of, though, right? For the most part. 
It's not to be worshipped. It's not the end. It's not your goal. Your goal is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So sadly, many young people are falling for the same cheap tricks over and over again. And they think, hey, I want to be satisfied. I want love. I want joy. I want peace. Guess what? That's the fruit of the Spirit. And so they go and they seek it all these other places. Hello? Read Galatians 5. It's the fruit of the Spirit. And so in our present erotic age, we must not be lured into compromising. We shouldn't be scared into surrendering God's good gifts. And so as a church, we need to be aware of this. We've got we to warn about the serious dangers of misusing physical love. As parents, we need to help our children out. Warn them about the dangers of misusing physical love. It's something precious to be used within marriage. So this requires us to teach what the Bible says positively about sexual love. Warn people and, and help them not help them to think biblically instead of often how the world thinks. Well, in married love, God intends us for us to enjoy pleasure, to build relationships, to establish our identity, and even find meaning, by the way, the meaning ultimately in God's love. And so in the final chapter, interestingly enough, we, we read about the passionate strength of love. Now we haven't read this yet. This is awesome. This is to me, this is so precious. All right, you ready? Look at chapter 8. This is awesome. Chapter 8, verse 6. Chapter 8, verse 6. It says, Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love. Neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. (laughs) That's awesome. Precious words. The idea there is, it's talking about the strength and the passion of love. Love is something that's irresistible. We all seek it. Everybody wants love. It's something that's immovable. Even death, (laughs) even death cannot deal with it. It, Love is as strong as death. I mean, death is is permanent, isn't it? Death happens, you're dead. you, You don't come back. It's immovable. Well, the Bible says in Romans chapter 8 that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us, that's believers, from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you hear that? There's there's nothing. Absolutely nothing. And notice death was one of the things mentioned there. Not even death can separate you from God's love for you. And so, my Christian friend, do you recognize that the most zealous commitment shared by the world's most committed lovers is just a dim picture of Christ's commitment and His love for you? So you, you might think you're the most romantic dude on planet Earth. But guess what? Your romance pales in comparison 
to Jesus Christ's love for you. And so, God does, though God does offer some fulfillment in this life, don't get me wrong, He, he does offer some. Complete fulfillment is something you need to realize it's only coming later. Complete fulfillment is yet to come. None of our longings are going to be perfectly satisfied now. But one day they will be. One day they will. All longings will be perfect and completely satisfied. In fact, one of the last verses in the Bible reminds us of this wonderful promise. And I want to end with this. Listen to what Revelation chapter 21 says. And this is John speaking here, by the way. And he sees, he sees this vision. And here's what he says. He says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Oh, those are awesome, precious words. So John, he's using this wonderful imagery of marriage, which, which, which everyone knows. The new Jerusalem, the heavenly city, the capital city of heaven, it's like it's walking down the aisle. And, and the, the, the marriage wedding celebrations taking place, right? Dun, 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 right? Everyone stands up and, and the bride's just beautiful and glowing and, and everybody's smiling and people are crying. You know, you know, you know what that's like, right? You've experienced it. That's the imagery that, that John is purposely using here. It's one of the most joyous things that we know in this life. And he says it's, it's like as, that is like as a bride adorned for her husband. And those of us who, as husbands who have had a bride or have one, we know that's precious. For me, I look back on my wedding day as one of the greatest days of my life outside of my spiritual birth. When I joined the church, if you will, in, the, in this union between me and Christ. But outside of that, seeing my wife walk down the aisle and being joined to her is, is the next best day in my life. Those of us who have experienced that ought to understand what the Bible is trying to say here. My friend, you will see that one day if you're a believer. You will see the capital city of heaven come and, and all of your longings, your your, your contentment, your whatever it is you want will be ultimately fulfilled in Christ and what that relationship brings. So my friend, where's your heart? Where's your affections? Where are they? Colossians 3, verse 2 says, your, your heart, your affections, your attention is to be set on things above, not on things on the earth. You're to be seeking heavenly things, not the things of this earth. Because why? Because those things don't ultimately satisfy. They don't ultimately satisfy. You, you'll, keep, you know, you'll keep wanting the next meal, the next buzz, whatever that is, until you set your affection on things above and not on the earth. May God help us by his grace to do that.